Straw Hut Media. I would say the memory in my head that takes me back to the first time I felt stigma or saw stigma uh, that was, you know, anti-black, anti-queer, and anti-HIV was my early, early teens. I was probably 12. I was at my grandmother's house, who I loved dearly, who was a magical woman. She's still with us. I hope to see her soon. And we were at her house, and it was like a holiday or something, and a lot of family were there eating. And I come from a very black Southern family where soul food is vital. And we were there, and my uncle uh, was present, and he was sitting in a chair by himself. A very like white, like outdoor chair. I don't know if you're talking about it. It's like a chair that's like very cheap at Walmart, usually outdoors, but it was in my grandmother's kitchen because she needed more seats. And he was sitting there and he wasn't speaking. And uh, he had been tested, he tested positive for HIV a few years before. He had been in hospice. He was not doing very well at this time. But my family just wasn't talking about it. Like his mother, my great aunt, was just not talking about it. No one was talking about it. Everyone just was like saying it was something else. It was cancer, it was everything else, but they would not engage him. And through that process, no one talked to him. And he's the first black queer person I know. I met him when I was a little kid. From stories I hear, we got along really well. He lived with my parents for a minute. Like there was like a, a, a bond there that I like to imagine retrospectively and in my fantasia that it was because he saw himself in me and I may have saw myself in him. And then at this age, as he was sitting there, I just remember it all connecting that like to be black queer and in a body and in this family means isolation. It means no one's going to talk to you. It means you're going to die. It means that you won't be with us very long. And it just broke my heart. And I remember leaving that day and I was in the car with my dad and my stepmother at the time. And I brought up my uncle and asked why he was so sick and what was going on. And my stepmother at the time said, it's because he's gay and he has AIDS uh, and you die when you're gay because you get AIDS. And I just in that moment was like, oh my God, I can't, I can't do this. I don't want to die. I don't, is that what's, what's in store for me? And I began to push it in the back of my mind for many years. And, and I think in that moment, I just really wanted to go back. And I think about this a lot these days, like, what would the world look like if instead of like leaving him in the corner in a chair, if we all had embraced him, if we all had talked about it, like what would that have been like for him? What would that have done for me? And not saying I've had like a terrible life. I have figured it out. I have a career I'm proud of all these things but I just think about that moment how other people have had that moment and how like I was lucky that I found a future and salvation and all that and other people don't because in that moment I think there was a path in front of me of like go right hate myself never come out maybe end up like this or go left and try to imagine a world that my family could see in which like it doesn't all end like this it's because if they just change it can change think of the AIDS epidemic, a few words may pass through your mind. Illness, fear, death, and probably gay. After the first case was discovered in 1981, people began referring to the disease as gay cancer, or the gay plague. And it was seen as a death sentence. Even years later, after many improvements in science and medicine, and a significantly longer life expectancy for people living with HIV, there is still stigma around AIDS. Stories in media about AIDS and the queer community still usually end in tragedy and death. But people like our next guest are fighting to break the stigma. Today we're joined by Zach Stafford, a storyteller who's determined to spread positivity and hope to the community. I'm Zach Stafford, and this is Pride. 
When it comes to media, Zach has done a little bit of everything. I am a journalist. I guess in the truest sense, I have been a reporter, I've been an editor, I've been an editor-in-chief, I've been a television host, I've been a podcast host, I have done everything, but I guess I just, I do a lot of storytelling across formats. He was the first black editor-in-chief at The Advocate, the oldest LGBTQ plus publication in the United States, and he was the editor-at-large over at BuzzFeed. But now he's taking a step back and embracing life as a single girl in the world, and it feels amazing. Um, and I'm currently, it's my first time in my life not being formally an editor of anything, which is so wild. You're an editor of your life. Thank you. I love that. I'm an editor-in-chief of my life. That is, I love that. That's very Oprah. Zach is accustomed to speaking about his life in terms of one of his professional titles. But before we get into that, let's look at where Zach's journey began. I think when you have like, you work in media like us, we always talk about like the product, but never like what makes the product. Everyone's like, oh my God, editor-in-chief, but like not where you come from. So I really get asked that. And I'm from Tennessee. I'm from outside of Nashville. I grew up near the Tennessee-Kentucky border. To be more specific, a small town called Henderson, Tennessee. He's mostly known for country music. His hometown had a small black population, which caused a young Zach to grow up feeling isolated and alone. And I grew up in a place where I just never, I didn't see people like me ever on TV or in media or anything. So I never saw it was possible. And I always bring that up to people because we talk about representation a lot, but I think people forget just how powerful it can be that when you finally see yourself in something, how it can radically shift the potential for a future for yourself. And, and I saw that when I got to Chicago eventually. But at the time, I just remember where I was from. I just never, I didn't know what I wanted to be really, but I never thought I could be anything because I didn't see anything in the world of myself. And it was really tough, but all I was focusing on in the South at the time, and maybe this is thanks to Dan Savage, who I was already gone by this time, but his thinking at the time but in his columns around this idea that it can get better. But what was in the middle of that was if you leave home and you go find community somewhere. And I think queer people go through that process a lot. So all I was focused on as a kid, I was like, I gotta get the hell out of here and then I'll find myself. True to his word, when the time was right, Zach packed up his bags and moved to Chicago, which is where he put down roots and began to truly find himself. And that's where I became a writer. That's where I found family and community. And just I found possibility. Um, And that's kind of how it all began. If I never went to Chicago, I don't think I would be a writer. Like we wouldn't be talking today. I don't know what I would be. I don't know if I would have gone down this path. I don't think um, like writer was like exactly what fate wanted for me, um, unless I took the, the leap of faith and moved to a city I knew nobody in. And that's what happened. Before his big move, Zach never pictured himself as a journalist. His family didn't make it a habit to keep up with any kind of media, so he didn't have any experience going into it. I didn't even think I was a good writer, actually. Until he found a mentor at his university in Chicago, who believed in his ability to write. When a professor pulled me inside and said, you have some good thoughts, you just don't know how to put them on a page. And he made me come to his office every week and read my essays to him, and he gave me notes. And, um, and he changed my life, honestly. like truly changed my life. Zach was focusing on women's and gender studies at DePaul University in Colorado when he was first published by a major news organization. Yeah, yeah, that did happen really fast out of nowhere. So when I was in college, I began professionally writing. When I mean professionally, I, you know, I did some writing for US, 
USA Today in the college section. I work for Thought Catalog, the famous website before BuzzFeed that was super viral. Um, and then I was part of this website called Huffington Post when it launched. Um, so I was like writing very young and I was writing at the time very much about being queer. So I think I was like starting off in the, the main space, the main stage or the mainstream writing about queer lives. He kept busy juggling writing and his studies until he graduated. Then he decided to defer from graduate school and write a column for the Chicago Tribune. As a queer black man, Zach focused a lot of his writing on his own perspectives. I wrote a lot about my experience. And I think there was like a lot of luxury in some ways and privilege in being able to give, be given space to talk about queerness in a mainstream outlet like the Tribune, which was like read by everyone in Chicago. He was making a name for himself at the Tribune and was collaborating with other queer storytellers at the time on an anthology. I did this book called Boys that was a collection of short stories and essays by queer writers, people like Alok Vaidmanan, Buck Angel, Noah Michelson at Huffington Post, just like a variety of people, Nico Lang. And that was like my first kind of dive into queer media in its like purest sense. The book was queer, the publishing house was small, we did a book tour with all the queer writers. Most of the writers in it have gone on to have like incredible careers. For context, Buck Angel is a trans adult entertainer, sex educator, and motivational speaker. Nico Lang is an award-winning reporter and editor. And Alok Vadmenin is a writer, an artist, and a media personality who at the time was also on the home stretch of his college career. All of these voices are heard in this book, which was and is still a really big deal. I'm really proud of that collection. While it, it did well, it was like a bestseller on a few lists, um, people don't really remember that much, which is fine. But it was the beginning of a lot of us at the time, our first uh, kind of dive into queer media. Um, and it got us going, I guess, in many ways. It is common for a journalist who is a person of color or queer to get their start in media by writing pieces that talk about themselves or the current trauma within their communities. Zach first got into his genre of writing after a phrase started being tossed around in media headlines more and more frequently, Black Lives Matter. Mike Brown had just been shot, and I began writing about police brutality in Chicago because Chicago is an epicenter of police violence. And so I was doing that work for many years, and that's how I got, you know, as a reporter, I saw my career jump a bunch of ranks from the Tribune to the Guardian because of the writing I was doing around police violence at the right time and right moment. There's a few other you know, folks um, in the space that are about the same age as me that also saw their careers kind of become way more public because we were Black and we were writing about Black violence. Um, so that's kind of how it all began. And it snowballed from there. Publishers continued to ask him to write pieces when it was timely to have him voice his opinion on race, gender, or sexuality. And while this is a great way for the voices of oppressed communities to be heard, it's also an exploitation of pain. I mean, it's that whole, like, phrase, if it, uh, what is it, if it bleeds, it reads. This seems to be a norm for a lot of media where sadness and trauma can increase viewers and overall site traffic. We only get asked to do things in the mainstream when, like, we're asked to bleed on a page a lot of times. And even my own career, I look back at, like, when I got to The Guardian, my first piece of The Guardian was about how, I guess infamously, my brother, who was a white cop, shot and killed a black person. And that was my first piece there. And it was like about a very familial trauma and pain that went viral and happened. And from there, I built an entire career and became an investigative journalist, won a lot of awards for doing work not about my life, but it began about my life. And that's something that queer people get asked to do a lot. It's like, show us how much you hurt. And then if you can survive that, we may offer you a job. 
The feeling of seeing your name on the top of a publication is indescribable, but it holds even more weight for Zach. And like every time I saw myself in the Huffington Post, every time I saw myself in like Slate or whatever outlet that finally said yes to some queer black thing, I was like, okay, whew, I can exist. I can be here. Zach needed this space for himself, but also for others who needed to see a black journalist making a difference. But it wasn't easy, and the pay wasn't great either. So I worked at the LGBT Center too. And I worked with homeless kids, and one of the young people came up to me at the, the center, the Central Hall said and said, I've never seen myself in a newspaper before. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, I saw your column. And they had like woken up, you know, they slept on the street, they picked up a column, like a lot of folks experiencing homelessness did, because there was stuff on there about like free things to do. It was just kind of like, it's like the village voice of Chicago. And he's like, I opened it up, and I'd never met this kid before. And he came up to me, he was like 17. And he's like, I just have never seen someone like me in a paper talking about being themselves. And that just shifted everything for me, like immediately. And it made everything feel heavier, but also more more important, but more worth fighting for in the end. But sometimes the gravity of the situation hit Zach, and he questioned why his role as a journalist meant something different than the other journalists at his publication. And the bullshit, if I can curse, that they feed you is representation. You're doing this because it will help these young people see themselves. You're doing this for the movement. You're doing this for civil rights. They, they just feed you all the stuff and you don't ever even take a moment to step back and think, white straight men never get told they're doing this for whiteness, for the movement. I mean, it's kind of inherent in, time, in terms of white supremacy and media, especially like conservative outlets, like it's kind of duh. But um, we're never kind of given a handout and then told you know, be grateful, be happy you're getting this crumb and eat it and feel full. And if you question why you're not full, you're told that you're not being grateful, that you're not, you know, taking advantage of the situation, that like all these other things. And it's all at the end of the day, bullshit. It's all bullshit because it's a system that exhausts you by you not getting paid equitably, by by you not being respected or treated well, will burn you out. And you'll wake up in a few years and someone will offer you a job that was nothing you wanted. It may be something very stable, like PR at a major firm, but you have health insurance. People respect you. They're nice to you. And they, and they offer you that to you. And you're like, you know what? These people at least make sure I'm staying alive every day. But these other people who want to pay me 50 bucks to write about my trauma, because that's what a lot of us do, queer people, when we're writing these columns, when we're asked at the, the New York Times to respond to anti-trans legislation in Arkansas, they're asking trans people to work through trauma on their pages. It all boils down to a need for action. The work Zach and other journalists are putting in to create these emotional pieces is often overlooked and underpaid by media outlets. And that is something people should do. I think writing is in a powerful way for you to find perspective, to find future, to find possibility. But it also is labor. It's also emotionally taxing. It also can kill you too. And the fact that we have monetized our pain across these platforms without the support from these outlets to like fight for our freedom, fight for our futures in many ways, I think can be contradictory. And I think we just got to rethink why we want queer people in media. Why? What are the, what's the purpose here? And, um, and we have to flip it because in the past it's just been about like, let's point at them and like see the trauma. And I don't want us to be traumatic anymore. <laughs> I want us to have happiness, joy, and just survive in media. So it's complicated.
While it's important to bring awareness to the pain and the sadness that communities are going through, there's a whole other side of the story that warrants recognition. So what we're talking about is a very specific queer thing, but it's also just a fucked up media industry thing that we like love to watch other people go through pain. Um, and I don't like that. <laughs> it's tough. But I spent years as a crime journalist, so like I have a very different relationship to pain in the media. But um, yeah, but I, I want us, and I think you want this too, and I think so much what you all do here is about what's it like to see queer people feel good, to be alive, to be thriving. Um, and why is that so radical of an idea? Why is that so impossible to think about? It shouldn't be. When we come back, Zach chimes in on the controversy surrounding the Old Town Road rapper Lil Nas X and gives us a rundown of his new book project. Welcome back. Today we're talking to an award-winning journalist and the former editor-in-chief at The Advocate, Zach Stafford. Before the break, Zach stressed the importance of normalizing media that doesn't focus on the trauma and hate that different communities face, and instead celebrates the positive moments. He brings up Lil Nas X, who has been facing backlash after the release of his newest song and music video, Montero, Call Me By Your Name. The work he's doing in that video, Call Me By Your Name, you know, he he says he wrote the track, the song, and created the video as kind of an homage or a letter to both his young self at 14, who never thought he'd come out as gay and or queer and talk about it in public, but also in honor of a love he had last summer um, with someone that was in the closet. And, you know, it's also playing with the famous book, Call Me By Your Name, that turned into a movie starring Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer. For anyone who has not seen the video, Zach gives us a little rundown of what takes place. It's about a black queer person's kind of playing a musical instrument under a tree. It's very like Eve in the Garden of Eden. And a snake comes down and he kisses the snake. And then he goes on this kind of a journey after being kissed by a sin. This is a metaphor for a sin. He engages in a sinful practice. He then is like put in chains. He's brought before a trial. He's, you know, yelled at. He eventually gets hit in the head with a rock, which is like a reference to stoning, which people talk a lot about in, you know, Arabic countries, um, about the stonings that happen to this day, in Iran, um, so forth. And and then from there, he dies, I guess. And then when he goes to heaven, he actually is dropped into hell. But when he goes to hell, that's where things go really amazing. He rides a strip pole down into hell. And he gets to hell and he's like twerking and he's very sexual and he's very in his body. He's very in control and he does a lap dance on the devil, which is what has everyone pissed off. Then he kills the devil. And, you know, this is a metaphor of like this idea that being yourself, of, of, of doing the thing that you desire will kill you and that it will destroy you. And Lil Nas X is offering us a possibility that it doesn't destroy you, but it sets you free. The entire video unapologetically addresses the religious trauma within the queer community, which has caused many LGBTQ people to resent a part of themselves they cannot change. And I think that is what makes it a radical work, especially in public. You know, if this was at an art gallery in the middle of downtown LA, I'd think this is amazing, but I wouldn't think it as like so, so culturally defining. But the fact that this happened in public on this space at this level with someone who who song Old Town Road was literally honored at the Country Music Awards is like, he is, it's like a Trojan horse of many ways, his whole career of like, I, and he's kind of slowly come out and come out. And this is his way of being like, I am queer. I'm very queer. I have same-sex relations. I'm very proud of it. It's taken me a long time to get here. 
I think a lot of us relate to that, especially Black queer people. I think like in the Lil Nas X, you get to see exactly how queer, the expectation of queer bodies in space and media, how they're punished when they get too left or right. Lil Nas X faced troll after troll on Twitter after releasing the video, and even a lawsuit with Nike over the Nike Air Max 97s he named the Satan Shoes. But he keeps fighting. That's why I think he's just so brave and amazing, and I love how pissed off the far right is getting. Zach's next project continues this narrative of celebrating queer lives and breaking the stereotypical trope in media where queer stories end in tragedy. Like the film Call Me By Your Name, the Broadway production Rent, or even Angels in America. That's where Zach comes in with his new book, When Dogs Heal, a project seven years in the making about why people living with HIV adopt dogs. It is a look with me and a few collaborators, um, them being Jesse Frieden, who's one of the top pet photographers in the, in the world, um, Dr. Rob Garofalo, who is a pioneer in LGBTQ health period. He runs the one of the biggest adolescent clinics for LGBT kids in the world out of Chicago. And his research has been like groundbreaking, blah, 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 blah. And he's also openly HIV positive, um, which was also incredibly groundbreaking for someone so high profile in medicine, who is the like if you are HIV positive and a young person, like celebrities fly and rich people fly their kids to him to deal. So he's like that person. So for him to come out in the middle of the height of his career as positive was like a very big thing. And then um, Christina Garofalo, who's a writer, who's also the niece of Rob. Um, so it's us together. And we are we had this idea years ago of a conversation Rob, Jesse and I had in Los Angeles when I was visiting about the fact that Rob had a really special relationship with his dog, Fred. He'd created a charity that was like slowly kind of raising money for HIV positive kids and clinics that supported them, but it wasn't really taking off. And it was like just kind of a mess. So I offered to help him think through this and how to build this out. And Jesse was just finishing up a book about, I think, dogs and hunting or something. And um, we were like, let's test the theory. He began searching for dog stories like Rob's to learn more about the AIDS epidemic and was overwhelmed by how many people wanted to be part of the project. And then I did a look at a research paper at the time that said that HIV positive people, there was like 100,000 people in the US who were living with HIV that had adopted dogs. And I was like, what? How does someone, why is it with HIV that you are diagnosed with a chronic illness that you have to treat for the rest of your life as of today? You get a dog. You don't do that with other things like diabetes, cancer, a broken leg, anything. Like anything you go through in health, you don't like go get a dog. But then why were people seeking a canine companion? HIV positive people just didn't feel loved by the world, by their families, by people around them. But the one place they found love was a dog. I get so many notes now every week from people being like, I adopted a dog after a test positive and I never thought of it this way. I never saw myself framed as this way. As an HIV positive person, I'm told like not talk about it in public, but not only are you having people talk about it in public, but they're talking about it through their dogs and like how powerful the dogs help them get out of homelessness, get out of an abusive relationship, get them out of so many things. And what is so great about it for me is that it shows us this very cliche notion that like love can really set us all free. Like if you feel like you are loved by someone or something, it will give you this heroic power to save your own life. And I think we as humans, a lot of times have a hard time saving ourselves. Um, we need to like have something to motivate us and, and loving someone 
as RuPaul likes to say, is a practice of loving ourselves. And the dogs are the best vehicle for that for a lot of people. And the dogs for queer people are places that they don't feel traumatized. The dog never calls them a slur or never reminds them of like something that was really terrible to happen. Like we said earlier, many depictions of queer experiences end in heartbreak or death. This is especially true with depictions of the AIDS epidemic. These are all about people dying. They're not here with us today. They're backwards in times. It's a sin. It's about a group of people who, you know, eventually at the end of a few of them do pass away. HIV is not the death sentence it was 20 or 30 years ago, but the stigma around the infection still remains, and it's killing people. We need to talk about how, like, if you do acquire the virus, you can be so empowered, have a beautiful life, survive and thrive. And I think once we let that fear go away, stigma will die and and, the, and we can get the epidemic un- under control because we know that stigma and fear around it is what drives the rates up because people think that like it will destroy you. So if we take that power away, I think we can do, we can undo it all. And if it takes a dog, there we go. I'm cool with that. I will live in that world in which dogs lead us to salvation. I love it. Zach's Puppy Project began as an art gallery show that traveled to different LGBTQ centers before it was reimagined into a book. When you look at it now, um, it is portraits of folks um, shown in really positive lights. How Jesse frames them as very much uplifting and celebrating their thriving, which HIV positive people are rarely put into a space of thriving. The positive framing is a call to action for queer people to hold on to hope. And it's all about future building, really. It's about like framing to young people that an HIV diagnosis does not have to mean your life is over. It can mean that it can get better in many ways, but it gets better. This idea that it gets better is something that is still not stressed enough. Reports say that approximately 1.2 million people in the U.S. are living with HIV. And researchers have concluded that people living with HIV are three times more likely than people in the general population to die by suicide. And that's where these positive stories come from, is that these people were not, you read, like these people were not going to make it. Most of them didn't want to be alive at all. That was the problem. They had nothing to inspire them to stay alive. But then they got a dog. Now they're like, own homes, have kids, have families, have all this stuff because they let something love them and they love their back. And I just think that as queer people, we need more stories like that. And that's something that's so important for young people to hear, is that like, you are enough in this body and how it moves through the world. And what you should only be worried about is like making sure you keep people around you that only remind you that every day. Um, And that can like radically change your life. That's a hard thing to reflect on, right? To think like, what if we had just talked to someone and not made them feel alone? It's really. And that, that really goes full circle with your whole point about having something to love, giving you hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And something loving you back. Like that, that, that relationship is really something. It's much bigger. I mean, it's like, it's why all the animals in this world are always like Noah's Ark. They're always paired up. Love does solve. <laughs> Such a, that's going to be our, our exit right there. Love does solve. All the profits earned from When Dogs Heal will go to clinics to help prevent and treat HIV and AIDS. To snag your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Target, Walmart, or even your local bookstore. And to find out what Zach does next as the editor-in-chief of his own life, give him a follow. Online, it's Windogs Heal. Across every platform, I think, at Windogs Heal. And then the charity's Fred Says, which has a social media platform, so definitely go check out that. And then for myself, it's my name, Zach Stafford. Um, across everything. So 
mechanic there and I'm very accessible, maybe too accessible at times, but that's a fine thing and worth dealing with. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, Ryan Tillotson, and Caitlin McDaniel. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. And God, these sirens are weirdly bad today. Can you hear it? I I can faintly hear it. So you're probably okay. okay. Oh, I mean, when cool. it came by that one time, it was like whoa. Yeah, it was yeah, like very loud.